What I'm about to do um, may be, in your book, uh, utterly sacrilegious. Uh, I want to show you a clip here on the cusp of May from It's a Wonderful Life. I, I know uh, your, 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 your capacity for sentimentality may have drained by J December 26th, but I promise uh, it will reap reward. So I want to put, show you just a, a few scenes that kind of capture one moment in the narrative arc of that story. So if you'll forgive me and indulge me, listen. Better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Oh, you mustn't say things like that. You. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's an idea. What do you think? Yeah, I'll do it. All right. You've got your wish. You've never been born. Hypnotist? No, of course not. Well, then why am I seeing all these strange things? Don't you understand, George? It's because you were not born. Well, if I wasn't born, who am I? You're nobody. You have no identity. Oh, what do you mean, no identity? My name's George Bailey. There is no George Bailey. Are you sure this is Bailey Park? No, I'm not sure of anything anymore. All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? We were here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? If you've never seen it, then I should just do you the honor of explaining that George Bailey is the most affable man in Bedford Falls. He's a loving person. He's always got somebody else in mind, but through a series of unfortunate events, he finds himself not only at his wit's end, but at the, at the abyss of despair. And he almost succumbs to it, but he is rescued, if you will, by an angel in training by the name of Clarence. You thought Steven Spielberg had weird plot lines. And in that moment, he is supposed to be thankful for being rescued, but George Bailey will have none of it. He, he kind of still wishes that he never existed. And Clarence says, okay, fine, I'll grant your wish. I'll help you imagine a world, help you see a world in which George Bailey never existed. And so that's what you've seen in this montage. There's a series of scenes in which George Bailey is coming to reckon with what would the world be like without him ever having existed? Why? Why does Clarence do that for him? It's not simply to indulge his angst or his despair. It's to do this. It's for George Bailey to feel the weight and worth of his own life by seeing a world in which he never existed. What a profound sort of, you know, imagination. And that's why, that we're, that's why we're still talking about that movie 60 years or 70 years later and, and why I'm even bringing it up in the middle, almost May.
Why, why do I bring this up? Because we're in a, in a new series here in Eastertide in which we're listening to some of the most concentrated words about resurrection that Paul ever spoke. But we get to the part in the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, in which Paul has to entertain the possibility that the resurrection is not true. And we have to consider the implications of that fact if it is not. But what Clarence is for George, Paul is going to be for us. He is going to help us to feel the weight and worth of a belief in the resurrection by at least imagining a world in which a resurrection does not exist and is not true. This sermon is trying to unpack this in this way. What would it be like for you to sit down and have coffee with your inner atheist? And then at the end, what would it be like for you to stand up from that table and say to that inner atheist, good day to you, sir. That's our effort here this morning, is to hear what Paul has to say about the implications, to think them through, to hear them out, and then to consider what would be a world without it. And then we have to do our work here in trying to imagine what is the good of considering that alternative world. That's the work before us. If you will, I wonder if you might stand and hear these different words from 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Our central text for today is found in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have this hope in life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. You can sit. So the first indication that George Bailey is no longer in the world that he thinks he is is that he walks back to the tree where he had crashed the car that he was in, thinking that he will find said broken car in a gash in the tree, except he finds neither. Uh, no gash in the tree, no car. And he realizes, what's happened? Where am I? I? I know what happened, and now what I expect to find, I do not find. Paul, here, starting in verse 12, is out to answer what appears to be a belief in some measure among the early church in Corinth. He says, some of you say there is no resurrection. Like, it's just impossible for anything to be dead and three days later to rise again. Which, if you'll just for a moment allow me the sidebar, if, if that's true of, of those in his day, then we moderns, we we tend to look back on the ancient people and go, boy, they're, they're, they fall for anything. Hook, line, and sinker. They're just a bunch of ignorant rubes. But if you've got people there in the early church that are saying, Paul, love you, man. However, <laughs> this resurrection thing, bridge too far. Then they, they could think too. 
they could be suspicious also. So I hope that that would extend to you a little implicit kind of credibility that maybe there's something to it. Because in that moment, some of you who are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul is only enunciating the fact of what was true in Jesus' day at the very end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew is unequivocal in saying, as Jesus is going to the Mount of Olives, some of them worshipped him, but others doubted. So that's there. So beware of looking on, like, like C.S. Lewis says, with a certain chronological snobbery, that those people back then just believed whatever they were told. They didn't. But Paul was out to tell us and to tell them, look, if, if you say that there is no resurrection from the dead, full stop, then that means any talk of Jesus rising from the dead, it, it doesn't follow. If there is no resurrection, then guess what? Jesus didn't raise. And so now you, Corinthians, have to, to account for this. How is it that you've even heard about this person? How is it that this idea has spread from a little tiny enclave of a bunch of people who have no reputation, no cachet, nothing? How is it that it's gone to you in Corinth? How did it make the leap through from, not from, from bat to human, but from Jew to Gentile? How would any unsuspecting Gentile even, even hear about this, let alone believe it? How has it begun to penetrate every socioeconomic strata of the ancient world? You have to account for that, Corinth, if you think that there is no resurrection from the dead. And as we said last week, what's true for Corinth is true for us. If you would say, out of hand, there is no resurrection, then how do you account for even the existence of the early church, which had no army, had no library, had no government, had no advocacy, and still it simmers, and still it spreads. Now, I'm getting far afield of maybe where Paul is going in the passage, but we all have to reckon with that. But Paul now says we have to reckon with three things if we want to consider the implications of a world in which there is no resurrection. And if you'll indulge me, imagine if George Bailey sat down with three people, Hans Christian Andersen, Arthur Miller, and Peggy Lee. Imagine that conversation. Let's take the first, Hans Christian Andersen. Paul goes for the jugular there in verse 13. If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, what Paul is saying here is what we have on our hands, if there is no resurrection, is the emperor's new clothes. You know that story, right? The, the, these highfalutin clothiers come into this kingdom and convince the king that they are able to weave for him the most elegant adornments he has ever worn. And, and the king like loves the idea of being made a spectacle of. So he, he pays them great money and they begin to come in there and size him up and they begin to weave. And yet every time the king visits them and their weavers, the king doesn't see any thread. It doesn't see any spool. He sees them moving the warp and woof, but there's nothing there. And he thinks, it must be me, right? And then eventually the, the clothiers come to him and say, look at these grand, grand robes that we've created for you. And the, and the king's thinking to himself, I'm here in my skivvies and, and there's no robes. But, but if they see it and they're so convinced, then maybe I should too. And so they put on these fake clothes and they have a parade. And the king walks down in his skivvies among all of his people until some kid walks out of the aisle and says, he's got no clothes on. And everybody wonders, what's up with that? What Paul is saying to us is this. If there is no resurrection from the dead, 
then I for you am the clothier, and all of you are naked. That Paul for me is the clothier, attesting to these wonderful, elegant things that you might put on and, and feel the utmost resplendence in all things, and yet the truth of it is you're naked. You can't go there. The emperor has no clothes. And therefore, everything else that Paul has said about Jesus, about him teaching wisdom to those who, who, who think that the, that the cross is folly, the whole talk about marriage and desire, the whole talk about the nature of the church, the whole discussion of, our, of the discussion of love that we, we spent all of Lent talking about, the, the, the su supremacy of love, all of that is bunk. You can't, you can't Thomas Jefferson it. You can't take everything you find in the New Testament and cut out all the things that are supernatural and just preserve the ethics because Jesus' ethics are inextricably bound to everything else that he says about himself. So if you want to just stick with the guidance, friends, you're being as incoherent to him and not taking him on his own terms. You have to believe that the emperor has no clothes if there isn't a resurrection from the dead. Because to, to, to take out the resurrection is to pull out that Jenga piece in which the whole thing falls. The whole kit and caboodle is rising, riding on whether or not he was risen. Oh, but it gets worse, right? You think Hans Christian Andersen was bad. Now imagine George Bailey sitting down with Arthur Miller. What do I mean by that? In verse 17, if in fact the resurrection was not true, and that your faith is in vain and my preaching is in vain, then this is also true in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Last week we talked about how the resurrection is not primarily about an act of God's power, even though it is that. It is primarily, if not mainly, an expression of His grace. Because it's Paul who was an oppressor, who was a persecutor, who in time becomes an ambassador for the very truth that he sought to decimate. And therefore to him, he can only understand the resurrection as an act of God's grace to him and to the world. But if there is no resurrection, then all we have is a dying Jesus. And if all we have is a dying Jesus, then Jesus in many ways is all talk. Because among all the number of things that Jesus had to say to us prior to his resurrection is that in him was forgiveness. And therefore, if there is only a dying Jesus, then we cannot base any hope on anything he had to say about forgiveness. So let's run with that for a minute. What are the options? if what he had to say about forgiveness was not true. One option is this, that there's no such thing as sin. That whatever you or this world or Minneapolis or Delhi or Columbus or wherever they might be is angry about something that feels like it's a violation of something more than just a social contract, but something transcendent, you have to set that aside. You can have your angry feelings. You can have your demands for desire for justice. But you can't insist that anybody else hold that same idea. 
Because there's nothing bigger than what you want. Nothing bigger than what the culture might agree on for a season. And cultures, have we, are we clear? They, they change. You can choose that way and say that there is no sin. That there is no standard. That justice is just something that we talk about and placard, but which we can't really ground in anything more than what we want. In which case, George Bailey would have to sit down with Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller wrote a play back in the 60s. It's called After the Fall. It's about a Jewish New York City intellectual. It's about a, a man who's, the play pretty much takes place within his own head, his own thoughts, and he's, he's on the cusp of deciding whether or not he's going to follow this new relationship that he's got. But in the middle of that sort of internal dialogue, he has this little dialogue within himself that, um, we've pulled from our archives that our own Craig Lotz was able to portray in a scene from that. So listen for just a couple minutes about this man imagining a world in which there is no standard. You know, more and more, I think that for many years, I looked at life like a case of law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart then what a good lover you are, and a good father, and finally how wise or powerful or what the hell that would be. But underlying it all, I see that now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a burden anyway. I think now the disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remains is this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence, which of course is just another way of saying despair. Now despair can be a way of life, but you need to believe it. Pick it up, take it into heart, and move on again. I seem to be hung up. And the days and the months and now the years are draining away. A couple of weeks ago, I suddenly became aware of a strange fact. With, with all this darkness, the truth is that every morning when I wake, With everything I know, when I open my eyes, I'm like a boy. For an instant, there's some unborn promise in the air. I, I, I jump out of bed, I shave, I can't wait to finish breakfast. And then it seeps in my room. My life. And it's pointlessness. And I thought, I could corner that hope. Find what it consists of. And either kill it for a lie, or really make it mine. It's a long scene, but the part I want you to hold on to is where he imagines himself 
uh, before a judge's bench. And then he crawls up and finds that there is no judge. And that is the world in which he thinks he lives. And that is the world in which many people think we live. There is, there is no judge. But there, if there is no judge, there is no judgment. And if there is no judgment, then, then justice is something of our own creation. And as honorable, as admirable as it might be, you can't ground it in anything more than your own desire. That's one option you have, is to say, then there is no sin if there is no resurrection. That's what Paul is saying. But, there, but there's another option. You can say, fine, let's, let's say that there is something to which we are all accountable. You, you kind of hear it more and more in literature and art and, and, and TV these days. They'll, people will say, ah, oh, the universe is trying to tell you something, right? Because we can't quite shake the possibility entirely of something being greater than us that we owe some sort of allegiance to or accountability to. You, it, it won't go away. People will always be religious. They'll just invent new ways and new personages to extend that kind of loyalty. So let's say that you think that the world still has something to which you are accountable. And that the universe watches. And that good is greater than evil. And so long as you do more good than evil, you're okay. And then like a lot of people, if you do good, you're going to get good. And if you do evil, you're going to get evil. You can go there. And many of us do. And many of us, even who believe in grace, kind of live in that way. I do. So what do you do when it comes to the things that you can't fix? That you can't compensate for? That you could never restore? That whatever harm you've done can never be erased? What then? What will you do about forgiveness? You're going to have to find it in some other way. I heard a story not so long ago about a man named Dr. Dana Cherry. And he is the son of a Jewish rabbi. But as Dr. Cherry grew older, and he would go every Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to hear the liturgy that was spoken of, there was always one line in that Jewish atonement liturgy that stuck with him. And it was this line, repentance will turn away the severe decree. Repentance will turn away the severe decree. In other words, so long as you get to the bottom and you adequately repent of all that you've done, that will trigger the forgiveness that you most desire. And that haunted him because he knew full well he couldn't dig that deep. He couldn't really adequately repent of all that he had done because that heart in him was not something he could just sort of conjure up the kind of deep remorse that he felt like was, was necessary to trigger the forgiveness. And so that's what said, maybe Jesus, there's something to him. Oh, Jesus calls us to repentance. But to say that his forgiveness only comes to him until we've absolutely repented of everything that we've done, in the words of the psalmist, if you counted everything against us, who could stand? If there is no resurrection, and yet there is still something to which we are accountable, and therefore something that will require forgiveness in you and in me, then where will you go to find it? George Bailey would have to sit down with Arthur Miller and ask that question. But there's, there's still one last thing, one last implication that has everything to do with Peggy Lee. 
What a funny place to find it. If there is no resurrection, then verse 18 is true. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Uh, it's a euphemism the way Paul speaks of death. They are, they are asleep. Uh, what he really means to say is that if you're dead, that's it, full stop. You, you, may, you re may remember the ones that you have loved. You may keep them in your heart and hallow them. You may give thanks for them, but that's all. And therefore, when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, no. And when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, though you die, yet shall you live, we would have to say, stop it. In, in the famous words of the late new atheist Christopher Hitchens, um, he who proclaims a false hope is a false friend. So stop telling me about hopes that I can't really hope in. It's where you go. What do you do with that? Peggy Lee wrote a song a long time ago and called, uh, Is That All There Is? And it's, it's almost not really a song. It's almost like a, a ballad that she, she speaks then, and then the chorus that she sings. And uh, the story, or rather the song, is about her as a child when her house burned down or uh, going to the circus with her parents or for the first time falling in love and falling out of love. And in each one of those circumstances, the chorus is, 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 that, is that all there is? And so towards the end of the song, which, which seems like a real downer, she, she speaks this line. She says, I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If, if that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, no, not me. I'm not ready for that final disappointment. Because I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you that when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? Is that all there is? Because if that's all there is, my friends, then, you know, let's keep dancing. Let's, let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. We may love them in death. We may lose them in death. But that's all we go. And that's all we get if there is no resurrection. Aren't you glad you came this morning? What, what a cheerful time. I came here for this. I took a shower for this. Are you beginning to feel the weight and worth of the resurrection by imagining a world in which it doesn't exist? That's what, that's what Clarence is trying to do for George. And that's what Paul is trying to do for us. But um, does that feel, whatever weight and worth we might feel the resurrection, does that make it true? It doesn't. Uh, it's not a proof for its truth. We'll debate here in a moment whether there's even an argument for its truth. So what do we do with this rather demoralizing passage if we stop at verse 19? I'll give you three things to land this plane. We, we've, 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 we've sat down with our inner atheist and had coffee. Now, now how do we stand up from that table and say, thank you, great conversation, a good day to you? I think you've got to do three things. One, um, you need to admit what is the preferable world. There are all sorts of uh, visions of our lives and of what existence is like that uh, you might want to ask yourself, what would be the world that you would want to live in? 
the reality that you would hope is true, which is not an argument for it, but at least just for the moment, say, would you please admit to yourself, what is the preferable world? Um, in one of the Narnia Chronicles, the one in called Silver Chair, um, Jill Pole and Eustace have been commissioned by Aslan to go on a journey, and it takes them in all sorts of places. And one of the places it takes them is to descend into this netherworld, and, and there they happen upon a, a weird prince and a silver chair, but they also encounter this, this being known as the, the, the Lady of the Green Kirtle. And, and she is one who is at first rather accommodating and hospitable, and yet what is really true of her is that she's a sorceress. And she applies her sorcery by trying to convince them of things that they did not think were true until they descended into her into her realm. And, and she uses her sorcery to convince them that there is no world above them. There is no, in her mind, overworld. There is no Narnia. And, and they begin to kind of bite on that idea. But somebody who's accompanying Jill and Eustace on their journey is, uh, is of the species known as Marshwiggle. And the character's name is Puddleglum. And his name describes his demeanor. He's kind of like Eeyore. He, he comes from the marshes, thus puddle, and his life is rather melancholy, thus glum. And so he'd be the first kind of person to listen to that sorcery and go, yeah, we should have not thought about that a long time ago. But in an ironic kind of demonstration against his character, Puddle Glum says this. I don't have a clip for you, or I don't have a slide for you. I just want you to listen to his words. Suppose we've only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and and grass, and sun, and moon, and stars, and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that, in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. And that's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any, any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. Puddleglum is enunciating for us, what is that preferable world? Friends, I don't care what you believe about God or about the resurrection. Everybody has to operate on certain assumptions about um, suffering, uh, death, forgiveness, and love. No one, has, no one can opt out from that. You may never be conscious of any of those things, but you build your life about certain assumptions about suffering, death, forgiveness, and love. It's unavoidable. And in a world in which the resurrection is preferable and true, then when it comes to suffering, no matter how much suffering can take from you, it cannot take everything from you. Not if the resurrection is true. And if the resurrection is true, though there may be a number of things for which you would wonder if forgiveness is even possible for you, that forgiveness is available to you. And for those that you've harmed and offended, if the resurrection is true, then there is something for you. Not only forgiveness, but power to be so humble that you might own what you have done and sought to make amends for what you have done insofar as they are willing to hear you out and offer it. And when it comes to love and death, 
in a world in which there is resurrection, then love not, does not end in death. It endures. It has something for you even now that cannot be taken from you. And therefore, whatever you might risk for love, it's not a waste. And even if you lose your life for the sake of love, if the resurrection is true, then you lose neither love nor your life. That's a preferable world. That's the world that Tuttleglum is asking us to imagine. And that sounds so wonderful. But is there any part of it that that, is that an argument for its truth at all? You might debate that. You might think, yes, I love a preferable world, but I know very full well that what I want doesn't necessarily represent what is true. You ever been a parent or a teacher? What your kids desire or your students desire oftentimes does not reflect the nature of reality. I get that. But at the same time that you're admitting what is preferable, the second thing you have to do is this. Consider that the preferable world might actually point to an actual world. And that's not original to me, and that also comes from C.S. Lewis also. He says this in that famous book, Mere Christianity. He says this, The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That the preferable world, while itself not a proof, is a pointer. It is a pointer to an actual world, and what we prefer may have a certain kernel of truth in it that cannot simply be reduced down irreducibly to the longing, but to something that we possess, something, an intuition that speaks of something that is real. And you might hear that and go, yeah, okay, cool, but really, can I bite on that? Last week, I introduced to you a voice. He's a Brit. He lives on three acres of land in Northern Ireland. His name is Paul Kingsnorth. He's been a, an activist in the environmental movement for many years and yet has grown disenchanted, not with environmentalism, but with the way in which environmentalism has become co-opted by industrialization such that it is fatally flawed. And he's written a whole number of novels about it. And he has wandered for years. And, and even finishing his most recent work from a couple of years ago, he he speaks of wandering through Zen Buddhism for nearly a decade and finding great truth in it and peace in it. And yet last year something happened to him. And he said this in an article that he wrote recently, unexpectedly and initially against my will, I found myself being pulled determinedly towards Christianity. It's a long story which I might tell one day. Suffice it to say that I started the year as an eclectic eco-pagan with a long-held, unformed ache in my heart, and ended it a practicing Christian, the ache gone and replaced by the thing that all along I turned out to have been looking for. He does talk about it more at length, and it's in one of the sermon resource pages that you can find today. I know C.S. Lewis sounds great, but here's a person 
that's actually exemplifying that idea in living color. That the ache in him, the desire that went unmet, actually pointed to a truth that he came to believe in. And he is the last person, just like C.S. Lewis, kicking and screaming, walking towards Jesus. Friends, I know you hear more and more stories these days of people and their faith deconstructing. And those, those stories are not to be glibly passed away. They're to be heard and reckoned with. But I want you at the same time that you're hearing those stories to imagine that there actually might be a set of stories out there in which Jesus has come to intervene in their life out of no interest in their own and have reoriented their trajectory profoundly. So if you want to admit the preferable world and the preferable world might actually point to an actual world, then, then what are we to do? Sort of tongue-in-cheek, I'll put it this way, only borrowing Paul's words. You and I need to live our most pitiable life now. Not your best life now. Your most pitiable life now. And by that I mean this, and I'll close. When you go to the sea and you're a child and you stand before that foamy monster, the noisy tumult frothing before you, you are immediately apprehensive. But the more you become accustomed to it, and the older you get, you feel more emboldened to walk out into the surf and let it wash over you, and let it move you, and maybe even let it throw you down. Beloved, if the resurrection is true, then you have permission to walk out into the surf of this thing that you barely understand and let it wash over you. You have permission to let the idea that the worst thing you've ever done does not change how you were to think of yourself in light of Jesus, that you are more, to borrow a phrase from Brian Stevenson, you are more than the worst thing that you have ever done. You are welcome to let the idea of forgiveness wash over you like someone standing in the surf. And you are also welcome to let the idea that death, though it takes much from us, though it haunts us, and drives us in ways that we are barely conscious of, you are welcome to let the idea wash over you that on the other side of death there is something more. And that something more is beautiful. And then finally, in keeping with what Paul says about proclaiming this word, you are also welcome to let the idea wash over you that you are no fool for naming Jesus in mixed company. You have permission, when you've established trust, to even ask the question, innocuous as it may sound to someone, what do you make of Jesus? And see where the conversation goes from there. If the resurrection is true, then you have permission to let those ideas wash over you like the surf at the shore. Look, belief in the resurrection will not get you a job. It will not cure all estrangements that you are presently suffering. And it will not end the ravages of disease. Not yet. Belief in the resurrection will not help an angel get its wings. But it will hold up a light when all other lights have gone out. Let's pray.
And so, Father, we beg you to help us to hold fast, to remind us of what is something that we have not seen and yet which we are to give our confidence in such that it is a source of encouragement and consolation. We ask that you would help us to hold on to what we we do not know and many times feel absolutely absurd for thinking that it might be true. But we pray that by your Spirit, through what you have said, would hold us fast. And to imagine a world that we cannot see, but one in which we might still believe. We pray it in the name of Jesus, who is risen. Amen. Let's conclude this service from Romans 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writing has been made to own to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace.